Here's a prayer in the form of verse. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising, from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. That was Shakespeare's Sonnet 29, and I imagine when I'm saying it that I'm addressing it to God. I've shared it here today because it speaks powerfully to today's theme, which is grace, where grace means the unmerited favour of God. For God attributes to us the unassailable approval he has for Christ himself, of whom he said, This is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. And when I say that God's favour is unassailable, I mean even we cannot remove ourselves from it. Even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, to quote the Apostle, for he cannot disown himself. It also occurred to me in the past week that whenever people come together in loving purpose, that is a church. I'm exploring these ideas today because through this podcast I'm going to bring you my audiobook narration of the Gourmet Gospel by installments, where I herald the grace of God in its infinite variety. Also in the past week I received messages from readers about my book and with their permission share them with you. This is from Michael in Ohio. I enjoyed reading about the freedom we have in Christ and his grace. Jesus has given us a life of resting in him, and the good works that result are a byproduct of his love and not an effort on our part to be pleasing to him. I found this book to be encouraging and easy to read. I would recommend it to anyone seeking to learn more about the freedom we have because of the grace of God. And this one's from Heidi in Lincolnshire, England. Hello, Abdiel. I have been a believer since I was 11 years old. My personal journey has been a long and arduous one. At 56, I am only just beginning to understand love and grace. Despite a heart that has only wanted to be pleasing to the Lord, I have travelled through decades of believing it all somehow hinged on me and my worthiness. It took my husband's death and being asked to stand down from a job I loved within two months of each other to finally get me to a point where I told God, either you do it or it ain't happening. Since that point, I have had five years of getting to know God properly. I feel sad at times that I lived so long trying so hard to be worthy. The laughable thing now is that God saw and counted me as worthy the whole time I was struggling to do what I thought was necessary to merit that position. It has taken me the best part of four decades to really get this. I do not know anyone else personally who has articulated this understanding the way you have. 
I have read loads of people who get it, but I don't know anyone I could speak to who seems so confident in their understanding of this as you seem to be. I dubbed 2019 my Year of Freedom and feel your book is confirming many thoughts that I have had over the past five years. One day, I might write a book too. Heidi, here's a hug to you and thank you so much for that beautiful, candid and open testimony. And I hope you write that book and amen to your year of freedom. Talking about how long things can take to come about, the Gourmet Gospel took me decades to write, during which I went through bankruptcy, homelessness, persecution, many trials. So messages like these from Michael and Heidi encourage me that a greater vision has been at work the whole time. So let's go now to the opening sections of the Gourmet Gospel. Preface The Oxford English Dictionary defines grace as the free and unmerited favour of God. The implications of this simple phrase are unfathomably wonderful and illuminating, with the power to transform lives and even all of humanity. Yet the human race has barely begun to grasp its import, and the Church certainly hasn't helped. Setting itself up in opposition to grace is law, for which I will use a capital L, except in quotes. I do not mean man-made acts of legislation, though these can be vicious enough, but a general polarisation of life into right and wrong. In conceiving this book as a champion of grace and a dispeller of law, I am compelled by the desire to set others free, especially when it comes to judgments and prohibitions about eating. Diets, in particular, are a type of law, and as the law makes sin increase, to quote the Apostle Paul, as I will often do in this book, they inevitably produce the opposite result to that intended. Instead, I would set before you a path to guilt-free eating, and if weight loss is your goal, a peaceful journey to it. Though my thesis is largely derived from the Bible, you don't have to consider yourself a Christian to benefit. In any case, my conclusions are often at odds with most preaching you'll hear in churches. I embrace that wondrous tautology, again quoting Paul, that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. I would show that that freedom can be tasted both literally and metaphorically. Broadly speaking, sections 1 through 4 of the book are theoretical, after which the remainder focus on increasingly practical implications. You may skip straight to the gourmet gospel section, which deals most specifically with food and eating, if that is your primary interest, but do return to the preceding material when you can, because it provides the foundational principles on which that section rests. For now, bear in mind that it is impossible to overeat. In the grace of God, there exists no dividing line between too much and too little, no threshold to cross into too anything. Though we can eat to discomfort, in our true nature none of us chooses to be uncomfortable. Also consider that the stomach is a flexible thing 
able to expand or contract according to its contents, can we not endow our consciences with the same flexibility? Before I proceed, a note about my use of the pronoun he throughout to describe a generalised third person, implying, of course, that it stands for he or she. I do so for economy of language, and assure the reader the male pronoun is used to describe the villains of this piece just as much as the heroes. The reader will also observe this work is brimming with quotes, both at section headings and in the main narrative, so for efficient reading, I have created an appendix for the overflow and made extensive use of footnotes for Bible references. Enjoy, or rather, bon appétit. Abdiel Leroy Introduction I have known what it is to live under law's tyranny, to be a sponge for every facile commandment. There were the spiritual ones. Thou shalt dedicate each day to God. Thou shalt pray at the same time each day for the same duration, and thou shalt do so before breakfast. Thou shalt read thy Bible every day. Thou shalt intercede for thy parents every day, and for anyone else whose problems thou learnest of. Then there were the sacrificial commandments. Thou must give away every possession. Thou must give up thy seat on the train to others. Thou must never refuse anyone anything, except sex, of course. Thou must not take pride in any achievement. But decrees about eating were the most condemning of all. Thou shalt ask for the Lord's blessing on every morsel of food thou tastest, but thou shalt not eat or drink during prayer. Thou shalt consume no more than one chocolate bar per day. Thou shalt fast regularly, and take no honey during said fasts. And then the law would seize on scriptures that would intensify the burden. I will not eat until I have told you what I have to say. In this most legalistic phase of my life, I would busily look for ways to prove to myself and others that I was a loving person by carrying out good deeds. Meanwhile, I continually denied myself things I wanted, and worse, starved myself and engaged in other outrages of self-injury. But my sacrifices had no power to perfect, and led only to feelings of bondage and despair. I was in such fear at the time that I couldn't even take up my Bible in peace for fear of reading a passage that condemned me or told me to do something I was not doing. My eyes darted across the page trying not to hover near such traps. I wrote at the time, I have put aside the porn mags, the alcohol, the masturbation, the New Age literature, the harsh words and gossip, the dirty jokes, screened out bad television and movies from my life, and still the call comes through, be holy. So I set disciplines and rules to waste less time, read more, meditate more, pray more, intercede more, eat the right food, deny myself things I enjoy, give away more of my possessions. I effectively said, O oh Lord, give me some rules to follow that I may be holier, and I merely sank further into misery and despondency, and I am heartily sick of it. I came to realise that my suicidal sacrifices were thwarting the spirit's fruit of peace and joy in my life and replacing them with slavery, that no self-injurious gesture could improve me, that I was, am, and ever will be in Christ 
with nothing to prove, that his love flows through my veins as sap through a vine, that the fruit of the Spirit is my natural output, that I am at my core a being of love. I could see how law had usurped the natural guidance of my own heart and replaced it with a regime of rules, timing devices and calorie counters putting me at war with myself. And I came to understand how law had inflicted devastating condemnation not just on me, but on humanity in general and church communities in particular. Ever heard of the Gordian Knot? It was a knot of such unfathomable complexity that no one, however wise or learned, however dexterous, had been able to untie it. According to legend, it was the conqueror Alexander who put the knot's torment to rest by slicing through the whole thing with a sword. Well, law is like the Gordian knot. So if life feels burdensome to you, as if it is tying you up in knots, may this book be a sword to set you free. Abdiel Leroy Section 1. The Return to Eden Quotes Whenever one moves out of the transcendent, one comes into the field of opposites, the tree of knowledge not only of good and evil, but of male and female, of right and wrong, of this and that, of light and dark. Everything in the field of time is dual, past and future, dead and alive, being and non-being, is and isn't. Heraclitus said, For God all things are good and right and just, but for man some things are right and others are not. Good and evil are simply temporary apparitions. Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth The first millennium was the age of gold. Then living creatures trusted one another. People did well without the thought of ill. Nothing forbidden in a book of laws. No fears, no prohibitions read in bronze or in the sculptured face of judge or master. Ovid, Metamorphoses I dare say you are familiar with the first Bible story in which, after each day of creation, God saw that it was good. Then, after he created humanity, male and female, all was very good. What if he stopped there, before any mention of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and before the prohibition against eating its fruit? Then we would know nothing of evil, not even its existence, nothing of right or wrong or sin. There would not even be any opportunity to sin, because there would be no law to break, no mechanism for disobedience, no boundary to cross. We would not have a care in the world. But, as we know, the book of Genesis does not stop there, for in the second chapter, God says, Thou must not. In other words, he introduces law. Law is our enemy. Quotes All prohibition seems to evoke the contrary effect. All prohibition, what it does is to bring more interest in going for the apple, in the case of Adam and Eve, 
or to go for the cigarette or the alcohol in Chicago. Vicente Fox, former Mexican president in 2010, backing the legalization of drugs. Forbid a man to taste a thing, and he craves it with all the greater vehemence. Toccato Tasso, Jerusalem Delivered. The tree of prohibition, root of all our woe. John Milton, Paradise Lost. Humanity is surrounded by man-made laws. They may be adopted to protect people from each other and even from themselves, or they may be instruments of oppression, see the laws of men below. But for now, I am talking about law in a broader sense, that pretentious authority, often derived directly or indirectly from religious or moral code, that purports to instruct us in what we can, must or should do or not do. For that type of law, I'm using a capital L, except in quotes. To that law, another artificial construct known as sin owes its very existence. Thus, as the Apostle Paul notes in the book of Romans, When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Law, he says, gives power to sin and would even make sin our master. In Paradise Lost, where John Milton masterfully retells the story of Genesis, Eve says to the outlawed tree that God's forbidding commends thee more. In these few words, she encapsulates the entire problem of imposing religious codes on people whose birthright is freedom. Freedom in thought, freedom in choice, freedom in action, and who must therefore resent, whether consciously or not, externally imposed strictures. The Eve equation, if you will, wherein law guarantees its own violation, wherein rules were made to be broken, is amply explored in Scripture, especially in the epistles of Paul, who tells us that law arouses sinful passions and makes sin increase. Thus, Milton's Eve, having taken her first illicit mouthful, does not stop there, but greedily engorged without restraint. In his Confessions, written around 397 AD, Augustine describes a similar phenomenon in the famous pear-stealing incident of his boyhood. He stole the pears, not because he was hungry, but because he sought to do something illicit. Thus, in the words of Christian history professor Morwena Ludlow, it's a delight in doing the wrong thing because it's wrong. Law is also a goalpost-shifting trickster, or, in Milton's words, dark, ambiguous, and with double sense deluding. Hijacking thought, it presents a white place before you and says, Step here to be righteous. But when you arrive, it casts a shadow over it and bellows, Sin! 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 Or it will present a bar for you to jump over. Jump! Achieve! it shouts, for then you will be righteous. Off you go, racing toward the easy height, and leap. But as you are in mid-flight, 
Law raises the bar, tripping you and sending you tumbling in disarray and confusion. The law ties up heavy loads and puts them on men's shoulders without lifting a finger to help them. Nor can law bring about a change in anyone's character, nor can it perfect behaviour. Conforming with it will find no one to be righteous. It is, at best, weak and useless, and can do nothing to clear the conscience. As Martin Luther put it, law is not able to quiet a troubled conscience, but increaseth terrors and driveth it to desperation. That is why law may be aptly personified as a villainous dramatic character, as in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, where he beats the protagonist's friend, Faithful, and says in reply to Faithful's plea for mercy, I don't know how to show mercy. Have you ever played that game in fairgrounds where you try to run a loop from one end of a curving wire to another without touching? If you do touch the wire, however slightly, a buzzer goes off and all is lost. That is what law is like. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In short, law's ministry is to condemn men. It is a curse against us, opposed to us. It chokes the fruit of the spirit of life and ultimately leads to slavery and death. You've been listening to my audiobook recording of The Gourmet Gospel. The ebook is currently free at most retailers, and you can find the links to get your copy by going to my website, poetprofit.com, where profit spelt P R O P H E T. You can also get a free copy there of my epic poem, Obama's Dream, also replete with biblical and mythological references by going to the free book page and joining my readers list. Though I'm giving these books away at the moment, a great way to compensate me is to leave a review. If you have a Kindle version of the book, use the links at the back under About the Author, or if you picked up a copy at another retailer, leave a review there. Thank you, in advance. Before I go, here's another prayer in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet, one that I quote in the Gourmet Gospel as well. Sonnet 112 Your love and pity doth the impression fill which vulgar scandal stamped upon my brow. For what care I who calls me well or ill? So you, O green my bad, my good allow. You are my all the world and I must strive to know my shames and praises from your tongue. None else to me, nor I to none alive, that my steeled sense or changes, right or wrong. In so profound abyss I throw all care of others' voices, that my adder's sense to critic and to flatterer stop it are. Mark how with my neglect I do dispense. You are so strongly in my purpose bred, that all the world besides me thinks are dead. Now you have no way of confirming this, but whenever I share the verses of other poets in this podcast, it's from memory. 
You'll just have to trust me on that one. Until next week, this has been Abdil Leroy. <laughs>